Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Lord, I just pray that you give us the grace in this interview to bless all of those who hear, that they might come to a, a greater sense of enlightenment in their minds, and that would translate into a greater fervor in following you in all things. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Malloy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Uh, so Christopher is how I, I my term of endearment for for Dr. Malloy is Christopher. Uh, we would refer Perfect. to each other by our our first names like that, uh, with with verve, with uh, enthusiasm on the campus of the Catholic University of America. Um, Dr. Malloy, do you remember when we first met? The context or anything like that? Well, I do remember it was before we formed that fellowship group and maybe the fellowship it was after- of the ring. Yes, that's did right. We did-, <laughs> did we meet at the crab fest? It was, it was some kind of like opening. Was it actually a crab fest? It was some kind of opening, I met- like barbecue or something for the. I met the our, our compatriot Patrick uh, at, at that uh, crab fest. And I think maybe I met you through him. Yeah. Or no, you told me about him. So uh, for okay. folks who aren't aware, Patrick is Carrie's brother. And, and basically it's Patrick's fault that I met Carrie and, and now I'm married. And uh, to Carrie <laughs> that was and hilarious. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. But you, when you met me, you were chatting and you're like, there's this guy you got to meet. He's, he reminds me of you and, and how you talk and the things you're emphasizing and all of that. So, yeah. So we both entered the PhD program at Catholic university of America in 1992, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, 1992. Yeah. And um, I, I just as uh, we're going to talk about your book, False Mercy, and I, I got so much to talk about with it. But just to give folks a, a little bit of a personalized context, they don't get to hear every day um, from someone who has a vocation to be a Catholic theologian, that the, that the concept of being a theologian is, is a vocation. And not It's not a state in life, right, like marriage or priesthood, but the Catholic Church has released documents that talk about the ecclesial vocation of the theologian. So at what point, uh, Dr. Malloy, did you have this sense of saying, the Lord has made me in such a way that my service to him and his church would involve pursuit of academic excellence, scholarly, uh, uh, scholarly achievement, and the sharing of the fruits of that with others as a, as a Catholic theologian? At some point in my undergrad days at Notre Dame, and I, I could go into the story. It's kind of funny, but I don't know how much time. You, you go right ahead. Hey, we got 53 minutes and 30 seconds, Good. so you can use it. So, so a couple of pieces of the puzzle. I, you know, I was going to be a businessman and uh, just kind of make, make a lot of money and be powerful. And uh, you know, nothing wrong with that. But eventually I started thinking, you know, life's got meaning and I, I don't know what it is. I want to find out what it is. So I was thinking I'm going to be an English major. And, you know, write about the meaning of life. But I realized I, I better know what the meaning is first. So I jumped into psychology, had this prof who was wearing blue jeans and a cool outfit. And I talked to him in his office and he said, you could be like me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you could be a professor. And I said to him and Notre Dame's pretty special place. I said, you mean I could just be on a campus for the rest of my life? <laughs> I said, heck yeah. Any rate. Meanwhile, my friends are praying the rosary and I start praying the rosary and find my way. I'm already a Catholic, but, you know, kind of from Chicago, liberal Catholicism, basically, and uh, finding my way into authentic Catholicism, slowly but surely became eventually a philosophy major, then a theology major. And at some point, I just said, I do want to be a teacher for the rest of my life So when at the high level. Okay. And so when you think about yourself as a theologian, you think of it principally through the lens of being a teacher rather than say a research scholar. That's how I've started. Although I really do like research, you know? So my interview here at university of Dallas, uh, one of the first things I said was I just finished my PhD dissertation. And so I was basically done with, I want to get on a sailboat and relax a little bit. So I said, Hey, I just want to teach. And they said, I mean, not that I don't want to do any research, but, and they said, well, that's exactly, we want a teacher. So here I am. But then I, I, I do love, I love research. I've got three big books, two are academic. This one is kind of high level popular, but um, so yeah, I would say, here's the thing is defending the truth of the faith. I mean, literally I'm I, there, I'm seeking meaning myself. And then my friends saying the rosary say, 
do you know the Catholic church is the true church? And I said, well, where did you hear that? Because I just thought everybody just does their thing. And they said, well, the church teaches it. I said, how am I going to, how do I find that out? I better be a theology major. And then, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, so I became a theology major, started off in some ways wanting to do the good, the good intentions of a modernist, which is let's make this faith trans, let's translate it, you know? And that's a good make intention. it relevant, right? Yeah, and but that's a good intention, right? And that's what some of the modernists or some who might be considered modernists were doing. But then the problem is, is if you water it down, that's a problem. So I started sniffing my way by senior year to some of these profs, and some of them were great, but some of the profs were just trying to water down the faith. And so I, I then I come to Catholic U, I meet the Dominicans, and I met you. I with through you, I met like serious prayer, conversion, fellowship, all that through the Dominicans, like great liturgy and orthodoxy. Uh, not that you're not orthodox, but uh, but anyway, <laughs> so this is so that's basically the and I was like, I want to, I want to spend my life defending it. I'm a sinner, Christ has saved me. Like, go to confession. I remember in fourth grade, even saying to my friends, Do you realize he cleansed our souls? And we're walking back to school from the parish church, Catholic school. So now and again, these, you know, I'm just kind of a, you know, the kid in the playground who's just doing the thing. But now and again, I had these moments of like, he cleansed our, he cleaned our souls. (laughs) So that's why, that's why I like doing this. I'll do it till they drag me out of this place. That's great. And you're at the University of Dallas and you teach theology too. Is it graduate students principally or doctoral students? Uh, Where where do you spend most of your time? I would say most undergrad, usually two courses. Two sections are undergrad, and then one is is grad. Two okay. courses, you know. Nice. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas, Saint Thomas Aquinas, says that the act of teaching is tradere alis contemplata to hand over to others the fruits of what one has gazed upon. Um, when you have the privilege of doing that in the classroom, you've gazed upon the truths of our faith, you've contemplated them, you've reflected upon them, and now you're serving them up in a way that the folks who are in front of you can receive. Um, what's the blessing? Give me a story of like the blessing that comes from um, the act of teaching. Gosh, I just, today could be an example. I like to describe what a lot of us do is theology ology. That is the study of the study of God, but theology is the study of God. So what we need the big, the big guns. We need to disciple the big guns to do it. So we do do theologyology, like we read Aquinas. But I think Aquinas kind of wants us to read him like holding his hand, looking at God, looking at Christ. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when I'm teaching, and I'm, I'm, I've noticed that my notes, they've gotten really long and complex. And that happened, especially early on. And now they're getting refined and nuanced, more complex. But when I teach, a lot simpler. Because you can sit with the principal and really drink from it after class. So if I can help the students contemplate the real, that's what my goal is. Help them contemplate the real through the eyes of, you know, especially Aquinas, but other great theologians, objections to that contemplation. And if I can see in their eyes that this is coming home, like Christ, today I was talking about Galatians and Paul saying Christ died for me. And I said, you know, Thomas takes that so seriously that he as a man, obviously as God, he knows you and me, but as a man on the cross, Aquinas' opinion, he knew you and he was dying for you. And that, that just kills me. I mean, it's awesome. And then we can know that we be united with Christ and suffer with him because he's, he suffered for us. We love him. So we, sh- we share his tears, you know, and that's through prayer, you know, stations of the cross, that kind of thing. That's beautiful. And that, that makes it all worthwhile for me. You know, Dr. Malloy, uh, when you, you mentioned that, and it reminded me of a story of sometimes things get so complex that we miss the simplicity of it all, right? Uh, that the many should be able to be resolved to the one and, and help us see the one shining through. Uh, I correct the story if I got it wrongly, but I believe it was uh, Father Garagou Lagrange was giving, um, uh, he was scheduled to give a lecture at the, um, at the Angelicum in Rome. And this was in the, I think it was in the late fifties. And he got up 
and he said, God, he spoke one word, God. And then he stopped. He, he, he just, he froze. It was as if just speaking that one word, God was a, um, was, was a portal, was a, was a door to the encounter with the ultimate mystery, the source of all being, the paternal abyss, the, the one who is the, the creator, redeemer, sanctifier, though. He just said, God, and it, it, it stunned him into this silence. And he walked away from the podium. Have you ever heard that story? I have never. I love it. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. It's like a Catholic Hegel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being. Yeah. Yes. So oh, the beautiful. I could totally, he is such a deep thing. Not that you agree with him on everything, but he's such a deep spiritual thinker. I'm reading his eschatology right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've read his eschatology. He, he wrote a um, sort of the, like the, the, the three stages of the spiritual life. Yeah. Uh, that sort of, I, I don't remember the title of it. It might even be that three ages or stages, but it's, you know, sort of a beautiful manual of ascetic and mystical theology. And, and as you grow in the spiritual life, um, but yeah, uh, but I, I love that idea that ideas actually are epiphanic, right? They, they can manifest the very reality that is being spoken when, when there's a, a sense of um, union with what it is you're speaking, right? So the, the yeah. power of a teacher to be able to say, this authentically lives in me. And as I speak it, there's a simplicity to it. It doesn't have to, it, and, the, and the profundity is connected to that, right? The simple way that even a word can convey the reality and stun everyone into silence. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I think that that for me is a uh, like there's there's an ideal right that's a high ideal for uh, Catholic theology and for Catholic theologians right to say um, what I say matters what I teach matters uh, and what I teach has the the power to form or deform those I'm talking to. Here's one more story before we get into your book, False Mercy, Recent Heresies Distorting Catholic Truth. I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Malloy today on Sound Insight. Stick around. It's a great conversation. And we're going to dive into a number of the distorting uh, realities that are damaging the faith of so many. Uh, my son, John Mark, 16, last night uh, before we were praying, we were going to pray our rosary. Uh, he said to me, Dad, um, what do you think the worst kind of sin is? And um, and I was saying to him, well, sin that is like hurting someone you love, right? So I said, if I speak harsh words to Kerry, to his mom, I said, that would really be wounding to me because I realize how personal it is. And he said, well, wouldn't it be worse if your sin led other people into sin? If your sin led other people into sin, because then they would potentially be put on a path that would lead them to hell. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> And I'm here, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I was like, yeah. John Mark, what a great, what a great insight that. How old is he? 16. That's yeah. awesome. It's like, if you lead others to sin through your sin, you actually, that, that's like the worst way to offend God because you're damaging other people's relationship to God. Now, let me use that as a, you know, reflect on it as you'd like, but. Did that have anything to do with the rationale or the motive for you writing this book, False Mercy? Yes, I would say. And for me being a theologian, because I do see that some of the greatest battles are the intellectual battles. Um, You know, it's funny if you're in like a committee, the smartest person in a room in a committee, let's say it's mixed and maybe everyone has good intentions, but there are some people who have bad ideas. The really smart ones with the bad ideas say one or two things at the right time that don't seem to have a big pizzazz, but it leads the group inevitably in a trajectory. And I've witnessed that over the years and um, about 20 years of committee work, you know, here and there. And I, you know, or you just think of who runs the culture. Really smart people run the culture. They're not dumb. And some lead it to the good and some don't. And that's where huge battles are. You know, um, that's where the angel, how the angels mislead us, the, the demons. So writing this book, I've seen my, I've looked at my uh, task as a theologian. I, I hate to say this, but somewhat through the lens of the, the whole Star Wars thing, you know, it's like there are battles and you do have to go up against 
the big guy sometimes, and you're a little guy. I mean, some of these theologians are big guns. And, you know, you're a little David. Yeah. You just have the, 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 the Torah with you, you know, and, and so, so something like that. You know, what's funny is uh, I'll finish with this one story. Then we'll go to a break and then we'll come back and we'll dive into your book. So um, we were together at Catholic University. We were studying systematic theology and my, my major area of concentration was hermeneutics. So there was a certain theologian uh, on staff who was the smartest guy in the room, um, who was the expert on the staff. Uh, for hermeneutics, Dr. Powers. And uh, in one of our classes on hermeneutics, um, he was steering the class by the books that were put uh, on the syllabus. The What the conversations were, the text that we would read would shape and mold how we understood the reality of how, how do you come to interpret something correctly to come to understanding. And we got into feminist theology and feminist hermeneutics. And he talked about the lack of appreciation for the gift of women. And this is characterization, right? Uh, but he was going on about it in the lecture and how women have had a marginalized role of influence in people's lives. And I'm like, you know, I said, Father, I said, can I share this? I said, I, when I think about the person who's influenced me the most in my life, the one who's decisive influence shaped and molded me and my whole way of looking at life. And, and it was a woman, it was my mom. And he got so mad. He got bright red. Wow. Because the idea was, of course, that a woman who would give herself over to being a mother was, yeah. uh, was somehow removing her from a place of influence and importance in the eyes of the world. And, and I'm like, I'm going to just flip that entirely on its head and say, I have been dominated. Yes, I have. There's been a dominating influence in my life that I've been unable to be free from my mom. And he was, he got so mad. I, it was the worst grade I got in. Me too. <laughs> he totally did. But I, I, I have to admit you were in it and we were in that class together. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't get out of it what I could have. That was a, a lack of bread. I was so upset at what he was doing that I, I, I basically turned off. Yeah. So, but that, that's great. I missed that one. I missed you challenging him on that one. Oh yeah. It was we had our friend Vlad who really uh, kind of. I was going to bring him up. I was going to bring him up because yeah, you're right. Cause he was the smartest guy in the room. And then Vlad, I think he was like a, a young guy, like we were, but profound, yeah. a profound, yeah. do, do you know what happened to him? Uh, I, I think he's back in Romania. I'm not paused. I'm sure he got his doctorate. Yeah. Um, but uh, other than that, I don't know. I still remember he went at it with Dr. Powers. Yeah. Heidegger and the, the proper interpretation of Heidegger and how it was. And I was just like, whoa, <laughs> uh, I just I kind of I, I was backing out of the room like, holy cow. Vlad was not backing down. What yeah. profound, profound thinker. I realized I was not the smartest guy in the room that day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Malloy. He's a professor of theology at the University of Dallas, a, a dear friend and colleague of mine for 30 years now, and the author of a book we're here to discuss called False Mercy, Recent Heresies Distorting Catholic Truth. Back in a minute with Dr. Malloy and Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. Uh, this is Tom Curran, and I'm with uh, Christopher, Dr. Christopher Malloy. It's great to have you here. So tell me about False Mercy. Again, the title, folks, listen to it. False Mercy, Recent Heresies, Distorting Catholic Truth. Now, just to say from a marketing perspective, like they say, the one of the most important things that will draw people to a book is a title. And Recent Heresies, Distorting Catholic Truth, I'm not sure you went for that because you thought you'd sell the most books. Okay. It wasn't living your best self life. Right. <laughs> so first of all, tell me about but there's the false mercy part, false mercy. Actually, I thought that was a clever, that was clever and not just clever. So that, it was, that actually, was the publisher. That was the publisher. Yeah. yeah. So you want, do you want to know the backstory to yeah, the title? Please go ahead. So originally it was going to be uh, against recent heresies. Right. I remember that you sent me an um, early a version. guide map. Yes. Yeah. And a guide map for confused Catholics. Okay. So, but then when we, they were like, it's going to be false mercy, you just have to do that. And the reason is they, they actually, they didn't do a word search. They just had been reading it so much. They said, you know, what ties all these heresies together, your word, my, my own phrase, which I didn't realize false mercy. I, I said it like 30, 40 times. Um, 
So they said, it's going to be false mercy. And then it'll be false mercy, colon, a guide for confused Catholics. And I said, wait a minute, is the guide the false mercy? So <laughs> that's where that's where we went back and forth. And I, 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 I kind of forced that that subtitle. So a guide, but I also wanted a guidebook for confused Catholics. So that's the origin. Mm-hmm. People are confused. This weird statement's coming out, that weird statement, this theologian's doing that thing, that theologian, this bishop says this. So everyone's, many people, even really smart people, students of mine, like mothers who like are, are taking my class, they're directing RCIAs. And when they ask a question, they're saying, well, as Immanuel Kant says, um, and therefore, what do you say about and I'm thinking, whoa, the, this is a smart woman. And uh, so I got students like that. That same person came to me after class said, so is it all up for grabs? Is everything changing? Like with ang- angst on her face. On her face. And um, so I, I, I said, you know what? I'm, work- I'm working on this book. It was like two years ago. I'm working on this book. I got to get it out now. That's why I did it. Well, and it's um, it, you. You did something in great detail in the introduction where you talked about statistics, and it was very thorough, and it was um, it, you know very helpful. But it it showed what I call the demographic Titanic. You know, we're on this demographic Titanic um, regarding faith, and what you show here is that very simple concept that we don't maybe think about enough is that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And so just, just as we launch into the book, talk a little bit about the reason why you were like just drawing out the fact that, look, we're in this demographic Titanic. We're going down uh, statistically as a, as a Catholic church and linking that to what we really wouldn't quickly in the modern world identify it as a source. And that is, ideas, what has been taught. So talk a bit about that. Yeah. So with the confusions that you've got, let me take grad school as an instance. Okay. So there we are at Catholic U had one prof, good guy, but he was saying, you know, Pius XII said this. Now we say that. Um, And he's, and he was saying, you know, Vatican II undid what Pius XII said. By the way, we didn't read much Vatican II. We read all the people talking about it. So I'm reading the council. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and I say, I don't know that this is, you know, it's footnoting um, Pius XII. Is it really going against it? So this little two-page reflection paper for ecclesiology, I wrote, subsistent in does not change the thing. So that was back in 96, I did that, right? And, uh, uh, and he basically challenged that. He didn't, he rejected it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would say, you know, Father Sullivan says X, Y, and Z. And he said, no, he doesn't say X, Y, and Z. He's, and I said, yes, he does. And he gave me uh, not a, he didn't give me an A, he gave me something below an A. And after this, after the semester was over, after the grade and everything, he said, you know, I was looking at this text and you were right. <laughs> I said, yeah, darn right. I was, pardon my French, but I mean, I was, I was so upset. But anyway, so it's this, the church is always changing. So I just thought, am I in this constantly evolving church? Like I know Pius XII said only one thing infallibly, like the actual statement was uttered with infallibility behind it. Mm -hmm. But it's not like every one of his uh, statements is just, you know, fly by night or, you know, that kind of thing. So that's one data point. And much of my education was like that. You know, you have basically uh, the education would be such that, you know, the moderns raise these questions the, the medieval answers were bad. And, um, you know, now we get through Karl Rahner, we get the solution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Rahner's got a lot of insights, very much a genius. Um, but the idea that the deposit of faith is constantly changing really gnawed at me because I was a liberal. And Dr. I Dr. Molloy, what a, is the, a, first of all, what's the deposit of faith? You just used a phrase there that some of the folks listening are going to be like, he just said, what's the deposit of faith? What? The deposit. Um, so, yeah, it's, in other words, the contents of the faith we believe mm-hmm. that, um, you know, and, and early on formulated in a creed, but it's basically the pith and marrow of scripture, what God is teaching us. And we believe that. And then you can ask more questions as time goes on. Like, did God create 
with pre-existent matter or did he create without pre-existent matter? That's a precise question. Scripture gives you the principles to answer it. it so it really does answer it, but not explicitly. Mm-hmm. So then you've got development. The deposit is the original um, meaning of scripture, if you want to say it that way. And we yeah. can ask questions and, re- and re- refinements. But the claim here was that, well, the original teaching is now up for grabs. Well, and you know, Dr. Malloy, it's like when folks hear this, it's like, there are things that we believe as a church, we teach these things, the church teaches these things, and we're asked to embrace them and live them. And, um, and, and that'll help us grow as disciples. Uh, and these are things that are not going to change. Uh, no matter what century you're in, uh, they're not going to, they're not going to change in, in any fundamental way. And so it's, uh, and so the, the question that you really help address in this book through a variety of distortions that you bring out is the fact that if you put into question or you, um, or undermine even through what you're saying, the deposit of the faith, these fundamental beliefs, we actually are going to be weakened or, or, um, are held back or even um, destroy the uh, a fundamental aspect of being a disciple of Jesus Christ as a Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just say you deny um, sacrament of baptism, something like that. So first of all, you're going against one particular truth, this, you know, baptism, but that is related to other truths. So there's a, you could say a content, um, earthquake that takes place. Okay, baptism is no good. What about the Eucharist? I'm no different from a pagan, that kind of thing. But you also are, why do I believe these things? Why do I believe I eat the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ only because he said it? And and theologians can talk about the beauty and I can totally embrace that. But down, some of these things come down to brass tacks. He said it and I'm following him. He's my guide in life through the church that he instituted. That's the way I look at life. So, um, and of course, sometimes church officials say things that are not, they don't say them infallibly, Mm -hmm. Um, but but we're talking about those core teachings, right? And so I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ through the church he instituted. So that's why I believe these things, not because of fancy theology. So in the, in the first chapter in your book, you talk about this reality of dogma, right? The, these fundamental teachings of the church, how they've been put into question, how they've been weakened in terms of how they've been presented. There's a lack of conviction, and a lack of coherence, a lack of, of completeness in how the teachings of the church have been presented today. And as a result, we have suffered great losses, suffered great losses in the church. And, and, and here's the thing, it's like, you bring up the, the numbers, but you also bring up the fact that, look, numbers are people. Like these are people's lives. People's lives are being ruined because of teachings that they have been um, presented with. And, and maybe not just ruined here, but maybe an yeah. eternal ruin yeah. is going to reach their lives because of a heresy that was presented to them as authentic church teaching. Yeah. Or, or even let's say they, they, they slip into heaven, you know, through, through a purgatory, but you know, don't we want to be noble? Don't we want to shoot for the, shoot for the stars? I mean, so absolutely. Uh, and, and so the way I frame it is it seems that there was a, uh, with the second Vatican council, you have a series of communication uh, shifts. How are we going to communicate? And a lot of these things are great. You know, in, in fact, all of them are great ideas, like affirm the positive. We know that interpersonal, that really, that really helps. That's very important. Don't nag on the particulars. You know, a lot of these things, if you think about them, they seem to be good strategies precisely for someone who's a bit distant or far, the non-Catholic, if you will, or the estranged Catholic. And so if you look at a lot of the documents, they, they're kind of worded that way. We're going to address ourselves to the world. Now, before that, you had a lot of documents that address themselves to specifically to Catholics. So it, I call it like the huddle. You know, what, hey, what is it we believe, guys? We believe X, Y, and Z. And you can be more frank when you're talking to the family. When you're talking to neighbors, you have to be a little bit more gentle, not say everything, hope for a second conversation. And my suggestion is, well, let's look at the stats then. The stats, it's all, everything goes up in terms of nuns, uh, brothers, priests, seminarians, marriages in the church, 
uh, that kind of stuff, that, that all baptisms, uh, adult baptisms, infant baptism, they all go up to about 1960, 65, 70. And then they all go sharply down after that, except the priests, which kind of peter out because they're already priests, you know, they peter out and then they're dying now. So those correlate with the close of the Second Vatican Council, roughly speaking. And so you can't make that a cause effect. But the suggestion is, why are we silent on like hell? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of silence on hell. Why are we really reticent to talk about sodomy, mm-hmm. contraception, you know, the Catholic Church, the one true church, um, some, some incisive things towards our Protestant brothers and sisters? You know, justification is not by faith alone. It is by the grace of God, not by my works, but he brings into me charity and makes me righteous. So, so these are things like that's the end of the story, you know, the rest of the story, if you will. We need to get back to that. And well, again, I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Malloy about his book, False Mercy. And uh, Dr. Malloy, I want to make sure folks know how to access this book because I, I believe, I'm really confident folks are enjoying this conversation very much. They love what you have to say, and they want to benefit from the richness of this book, which is almost 400 pages long. And there is a tremendous <laughs> it's amount. Readable. It's readable. It's rich, though. Here's the thing. It's, not, it's, it's, uh, it's clear, but it's not simplistic. But right? you do such a good job of say, not presenting straw men. And that often happens in these kind of books is that the opposite, the other side that's being addressed is presented in a straw man form. And so you come out maybe feeling triumphant, but you don't come out feeling like, wait a minute, was there really an engagement here? And let me say to you, brothers and sisters who are listening to this program, so I'm a Catholic theologian. I don't often talk like that on the radio, but when I'm reading books, I'm looking for someone who's going to present thoughtful, profound insight. And this book does that, False Mercy by Dr. Christopher Malloy. Dr. Malloy, how do we get the book? You can either go to sophiainstitute.com or amazon.com, and there's Kindle and paperback. Nice. SophiaInstitute.com. Get it from them if you can. They're their publisher. You're going to save a little bit more money for them when you do that. Sophia uh, Institute Press is a, it's a wonderful press. Uh, John Barger, uh, he actually went to my church when I was at St. Marie's in Manchester, nice. New Hampshire. He's like six, eight, six, nine. He's a big guy. Uh, so Sophia Institute Press or, and, uh, and again, enjoy those books. There's so many wonderful titles from Sophia Institute Press or amazon.com. Easy to remember, false mercy. I'm going to give out the information again, as we move along in the conversation, you have eight sort of chunky chapters where you get into different um, distortions of the faith, different modern heresies. And then at the end, you have a kind of a catch-all with a whole bunch in, in the, the 10th chapter. Um, I'm going to start with one that you mentioned um, and, and just use that one. And then we'll go to a break and come back. And then you get to pick where we go next. So uh, chapter eight is on our marriage and sex, not ordered to procreation, our marriage and sex, not ordered to procreation and ideas have consequences. Something that Carrie and I have said on the radio is the sadness that Carrie hears when people come up to her women that are contemporaries of her, uh, or maybe a little bit younger, right? And they maybe around 50. They'll say, I wish I had more children. I wish I had more children. But I was taught from the altar by priests and in the confessional from priests that contraception was fine because it would allow us to love these small number of children that we had in in the best way possible. We could provide for them and have security for them. And, And now I feel this tremendous sadness that I was swindled by my priests in what they presented to me was the truth. I wish I had more children. Ideas have consequences. That is so sad. I, I mean, I have no words. I mean, that is so sad. And to think too, you're at that age. Now I'm past the age of, of women, you know? Yep. Um, and now there is, don't, don't live in worldly grief. I just taught that today. So there is a godly grief and that springs with the joyful waters, right? Um, so look forward. God can deal with any situation and move it forward. And right. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things Carrie said is, hey, um, open your home, you know, um, become a foster parent, adopt a child. Do you know how many, right. do you know how many orphans there are in the world? 150 million yeah. orphans, open your home. And, yeah. and, then, and then there's the confrontation with, oh my gosh, are you serious? Maybe I shouldn't talk to you anymore. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's all sorts of ways to be different. But yeah, it is. So the beauty is, like, we need to get back to this. Our culture's lost it. That when, when um, think of an abstract truth, when things become mature, they're able to replicate or, or give themselves off. So you're, we, we study, study, study. We become theologians. Then we teach. That's the law of being. That's what God does. God the Father begets his eternal son. So um, that's just so beautiful. And marriage, I, I just, sometimes my kids are complaining. So literally one of my kids said, so how many bedroom, did you, how many kids, how many brothers and sisters, you know, one sister. So did you have your own bedroom, dad? Yeah. See, why can't I have my own bedroom? I said, we gave you the gift of brothers. We gave you girls the gift of sisters and, um, and each other, you know, brothers and sisters. And sometimes they're at each other's throats. But they sometimes they get it. And I think as, as, as they get older, they get it more and more, the, the beauty of being with each other. And, and also, I said, you know, look, um, you're learning to share. I think you're probably more ecological and more, you probably have a less of a carbon footprint than smaller families. Maybe not always, but, and that's not to say sometimes there are small families and that's what God, that's what they can handle, et cetera. I've lost your audio, Tom. Oh, you have? Oh, no. Okay. There we go. no I'm sorry. I'm, I'm smiling. I'm just listening to what you're oh, sharing. Oh, good, good. Yeah, okay. you're doing great. So, yeah. yeah. So, the, you know, because there's, the, there's the, um, the opposite side where some people, very small number, I think, but where they feel pressured to have as many kids as they physically can. Right. And, and that I don't think is prudent. You know, so you've you got to measure it by prudence. But at the same time, it's very beautiful for me. All right. One of my daughters, you know, cleaning up the poop from the little kid and putting him to bed spontaneously. Um, this kid taking care of that kid, holding up our little down syndrome, baby, an older kid that it's all worthwhile. It, it's not just me and the kid, the kids are parenting the kids to some extent. Yeah. We could, we could go on and we could spend the, several programs just talking about the gift. I'm deviating, sorry. No, no, you're doing great. The gift of, of children. Um, but in that chapter, we're actually coming up against a break. So when we come back, I'm going to give you a chance to pick a chapter, uh, pick a heresy, a modern heresy that you think that maybe folks aren't really reflecting on sufficiently and realizing that there is damaging consequences to it. We're going to do that uh, today on Sun Insight with Dr. Christopher Molloy in a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Dr. Christopher Malloy. He is a professor of theology at the University of Dallas. He is a dear friend of mine, and he's the author of False Mercy. Go to Amazon.com. False Mercy is the name of the book by Dr. Christopher Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y, M-A-L-L-O-Y, False Mercy, or go to Sophia Institute Press. Just uh, Google that, Sophia Institute Press, and you'll be able to find the book False Mercy that examines recent heresies that are distorting the Catholic faith and have serious consequences for our lives as disciples. All right, Dr. Malloy, your turn. Where do you want to go next? How about evangelization of sin? Question mark. Love it. Love the chapter. So what was the what was the intent here? Is it a, is that offensive that we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? What's going on here? Well, it sounds like it to many. I mean, you know, in the culture, don't impose your ideas on mine. Religion is private, all that kind of stuff. At the same time, notice that we're seeing people evangelize on, you know, racism is evil, which it is. Um, and so we're seeing a resurgence of people very willing to be evangelists for their point of view. You and I have known since that hermeneutics class and before that, that everyone's an evangelist for their idea you know, to some extent. And even the idea of keep your ideas private is itself an idea. <laughs> so the thing is, the book talks about how um, it's the narrow gate and the hard way that leads to life. That's the, so false mercy is saying, no, it's a, it's a very wide open gate and a very easy road, and you don't have to do anything to get to heaven. Jesus is um, the privileged way. Yeah, Jesus than... is the privileged way, among others. Yeah. Uh, so there's all these kinds of things. And then um, 
if, if we're going against that, we're saying, no, 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 you actually do have to convert. God gives you the grace. You have to convert. You have to abide by the commandments so as to get to heaven. The church is instituted as the agent by which Christ will do this for you. So then the question is, if you and I have been given this, we got to go out of doors and like proclaim this. We've got to evangelize. And so um, there's several, you know, there's something about the Catholic, you know, we, we became the culture. Um, and so for many centuries, it seems like we didn't need to, it's just a few missionary monks and nuns that go out and um, evangelize. We just sit at home and be ca- cultural Catholics. So somehow that seeped into Catholicism and the Protestants got good at evangelizing. Whereas we just kind of sitting around also our culture is very much, you know, keep it in the closet kind of thing. Um, and what the chapter wants to say is, you know what, you're not, um, you're not going against the dignity of the person you're speaking with. If you evangelize, you can totally appreciate them where they are in their dignity. You're sharing good news. It's not your news. It's Christ's you're his disciple. And so you're not being a uh, moralistic, uh, self-righteous person. When you do this, you just say, Hey, kind of like I did in fourth grade, my soul just got cleansed. Do you want to do that too? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, and you said it, it, we're not imposing the faith. We're proposing the faith, right? Yeah. Um, I love a line from John Paul, II. second St. John Paul, II said that, um, the gospel is the good news and people have a right to hear the good news and we have no right to keep it from them. That's a part of it that people don't appreciate so much. Yeah. Okay. You don't impose it, but you know what? They have a right to hear the only truth that will set them free. They have a right to hear the good news that will bring them to flourishing here on earth and point them on the way to their ultimate destiny with God in heaven. How dare you keep them from the saving healing knowledge of Jesus Christ and of the church that he's established. How dare you? Yeah. No, amen. And then the other thing is, I think even people who look hardened, there's something in them. They're they're definitely made for truth. They're made for God. So when you say it, they might even get angry. And then, you know, you need to do the appropriate thing and kind of back off. But a seed was planted. I could say for myself, I had teachers not evangelizing me, but saying in high school, you know, basically saying what, you know, you, you really got an attitude here in various ways. And, and, and I remember being angry, but internally I said, you're right. Even right then and there, I said, you're right. I need to get, get, uh, get over this attitude. So I do think that people, people are hungering for this. And if we give it to them, not as hypocrites, but, you know, at, admitting our faults and, and just saying, Hey, we're presenting to you what has been working well in our lives. And it, like Chesterton, I'd be a really bad dude if I weren't a Catholic, even, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you make a great point. The world is evangelizing us, especially young people, poor young people who are being slaughtered on social media platforms by the anti-gospel of the world that is presenting to them uh, true, these falsities in a way that's pervasive, clever, seductive, and even intimidating. If you don't embrace these anti-truths about what it means to be a human being, what it means in terms of sexual identity, what it means in terms of relationships, what it means in terms of who God is and what life is all about, then you will be attacked. You will be shunned. You will be, um, uh, uh, what's that? What's the word? They'll canceled. Use? Yes. You'll be canceled. You're going to be canceled. If you stand up, speak out and push back. And, and if we don't, We are failing fundamentally in the stewardship that is ours. We who have been entrusted with this Catholic truth. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we can think right of the, you know, the chapter nine on the sodomy question. Uh, And now it's the transgender question. But, and so I like to think of this in terms of driving to the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains and what everyone's upset about, which is pollution. Right. I guess we've forgotten about that. It's all only global warming nowadays, but I'm upset about pollution. And why are we upset about it? Because it ruins nature. And sodomy and transgender are more examples of the sort of hyper domination of nature, not stewardship, but domination over nature that 
some of these ideas from the Enlightenment, um, some of the bad ideas from the Enlightenment, have kind of evoked in the in the Western world. So now I can I don't have a nature. I just have a body that's malleable. It's kind of like silly putty, um, and and that's so false. It's so hurtful. These these poor people they come back years later and they're ruining it, but they can't do anything about it. Right. And, and they're like, why didn't someone speak into my life? Why didn't someone raise a hand and say, don't do that? Um, and, and, and it's on us. I don't know how many times Dr. Malloy have said on the radio, I, I will never stop saying God made us male and female, that this is what the church teaches. This is what the scriptures teaches. This is what we've believed forever. And the truth will set people free and it's going to lead them to flourish. And if we allow a fundamental lie about sexual identity to be sewn into the hearts and minds of little kids out here in Washington. Little kids are taught gender ideology from kindergarten through 12th grade. Abhorrent, disgusting stuff that they are exposed to. And it passed. It passed into law. And it is, it, it, where's the pushback? Why aren't we standing up with greater ferocity to say, I will not allow, I will not stand by and stand silent as these little kids are being absolutely destroyed at the fundamental level of how they see themselves and they see their own sexual identity when we've been entrusted with a truth that is so precious that it's going to lead them to flourish and speak out against the lie. God bless us if we try to do that. Just we, 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 we get this intense attack coming against our lives. Who's going to do it? Someone has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, if they, this is such an obvious self-evident truth that if anyone accepts the opposite of it, denies it, anything goes for their minds. I mean, you know that from logic, you, you, you reject the principle of non-contradiction. A is A. A is not, not A. Once you reject that, anything follows. So it'll be obvious. We won't be able to stop Hitler in his tracks. So, um, and, and, and then the, the beauty of male and female, I mean, whatever happened, just relaxing and realizing that guys like girls mm -hmm. and girls like guys. Uh, and that's how God keeps the, uh, keeps the motion of the, of the humanity human going. going. I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Malloy today about his book, False Mercy. Again, I encourage you to go to amazon.com or Sophia Institute Press. If you go to their website, you can order the book, False Mercy by Dr. Christopher Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y. We're up against our final break. And then when we come back, Dr. Malloy, we've got five minutes left. I'm late on my break, if you can believe it. And I'm going to give you one chance in that last five minutes to, to pick our final topic. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the program I'm with Dr. Malloy. He is a professor of theology at the University of Dallas and a dear friend of mine and the author of the book, False Mercy. I'm encouraging you to get it. Great Lenten reading. You're looking for Lenten reading? False Mercy would be a wonderful book to get. Uh, in fact, I just got inspired. I think we'll actually read this during a book club. I have a book club on the radio, uh, Dr. Malloy, um, where uh, I talk about, we talk about um, contemporary books. Uh, typically, they're by Catholic authors um, with two priests. And um, I think I've found the book, False Mercy, is what we'll, we'll cover. Yeah. That's awesome. So it'll uh, be our chance to dive in more fully. So you have four minutes now. So where do you want to go in the last four minutes? Uh, we Let's look at chapter, is it two? Chapter two, Hell and Empty Threat. Yeah. Oh, I dare you to cover that in three and a half minutes. Oh. <laughs> Sweet. Nice choice of words. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, so there, there is certainly an ethos. When have you heard it in the last sermon? Mention of hell. We had a Nigerian priest in the area here who used to preach on it, right? I'd walk into mass, I'd hear, and the devil will try to drag you into hell. And I thought, my gosh, this is awesome. I can't believe it. Um, and, uh, and, uh, so there are some priests who are willing to talk about it and we shouldn't make it the be and end all, obviously it's, it's the negative side of things, but it's a very sobering thing that used to inspire the saints with, they'd have a skull on their desk or, you know, just even holy people to remind them, the, the monks that this life is not the end. And, uh, if we just think in terms of that this life is a preparation for eternity. And I either succeed, you know, by accepting God's loving invitation 
it's his grace, or I reject it. And the stakes are eternal and they're high. You know, Dr. Malloy, I was, uh, I, I was talking um, two days ago on the program with my daughter, Mary Grace, she's uh, 22 and she's reading introduction to the devout life by St. Francis de Sales. And the fifth meditation is on that preparation for death. And she's been reading it to her Christian friends and they're like, Whoa, Oh, this is amazing. Oh my gosh. Because they've never heard this before. And the, the cleansing power, it cleanses the perspective. It cleanses what's important for our lives. And uh, Carrie and I were talking about yesterday, how we typically grew up in a church that said, God is a God of unconditional love. And it completely crowded out the idea that there's something at stake. And really the most important thing, uh, like again, my son, John Mark, dad, what's the most important day of your life? Well, it's the last day. It's the day you die. That's the most important day of your life because that's where everything is at stake. So it's amazing how it can change fundamental things like what's important to you and how you want to live. You know, in the Phaedo, Socrates, that's what it's all about. We got to prepare for death if we want to be wise people. Philosophers love wisdom. And so that is, that's a great, if your listeners want to read a great pagan text, it's the Phaedo. But the, but we Christians have, we've been great at it. Catholics have been the best at preparing for death. Although I think with the pandemic, we, we lost it. We did not do well on that pandemic. Um, but, but, but hopefully we can get back to our ball game and our ball game is, you know, think of this world in light of eternity. That doesn't mean be negative and dress like doubtily and, you know, be a bummer. And so thankfully in the last 60 years, we've been trying to be positive in the world. I just, what we need to remember is that orientation to eternity as well. And if we do that, I think we got the whole kit and caboodle and Satan will be on it on the run. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Malloy, we have one minute left. Uh, you get to speak, you got total open. What do you want to say in the last minute to our listeners? Dogmas don't change. Don't be discouraged. Um, the book is meant to actually embolden and encourage you in a good, holy uh, boldness and hope. The church will not change her teachings her fundamental teachings, infallible teachings never change. And she's not like a weather vane constantly flipping around on other teachings either. She, sometimes she takes a little while to get clear on an issue. But why is this so important? Because you can't have charity unless you know what the good is. Through faith, we know what the good is. And we want to be extreme believers and extreme lovers. So it's not right and left. It's not like those kinds of, you know, I want to be in the middle between extremes. No, I'm sorry. I want both extremes, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like the true love. Amen. That's Dr. Christopher Malloy. His book is False Mercy. You can get it on amazon.com or Sophia Institute Press. Dr. Malloy, thank you so much for taking time to be with me today on Sound Insight. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen. It was great. 